Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have John Papa. Good afternoon, morning, evening, night. <laughs> Alyssa Nichol. Hello, everyone. Glad to be here. Joe Eames. I think he's hiding from us, or he hasn't found his mute button. I'm Charles Hey, everybody. Maxwood. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it was the mute button. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Chaz... Oh, I should have asked how to say your last name. (laughs) Yep, it's Gatton. Gatton. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io. All right, yes, Chaz, do you want to you introduce yourself real quick? Sure. I'm Chaz Gatton. I'm a dev architect uh, pushing our modernization efforts at an enterprise company called Highland Software located in Westlake, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland. And we got about 500 developers. So I'm leading this whole effort. Awesome. Well, uh, you sent us a short-ish, short-ish, I guess, article <laughs> uh, that you've been working on. It's 10 Lessons Learned in Enterprise Angular Development. Is it too, yeah. is it too short? No, no. There's plenty here to talk about, believe me. And, and I'm sure John has commentary on a lot of this stuff. But uh, kind of to get us started, yeah. I'm curious, yeah. do you find that enterprise Angular development, is that different from non-enterprise, like smaller business, medium business, enterprise? Yeah. I I, yeah I, what I, does that adjective mean to you in this case? My first job, I worked at a company with like five developers. And we just did whatever we wanted to do. If we felt like something was something we wanted to roll out, we did it. As soon as you get into this environment where you have over 100 developers, you have a lot of opinions. And it gets difficult to make decisions. And consistency is the number one thing, like making sure everyone is doing code the same way. That's what enterprise development means. It's like it's huge, large-scale stuff that you're trying to push. We deliver enterprise software to organizations. Um, but enterprise to me in the software development sense, it's like, yeah, you got like hundreds of developers. You're trying to get them all in the same marching order at the same time. It's different than if you're a, a 10 developer shop. Okay. I just always assume since I've never worked on a team that large that it would be pretty much the same as a five-person team, just kind of broken up into chunks. So like you've got, you know, 100 teams of five developers kind of thing or 10 teams of five developers and they can all kind of move with the same swiftness and freedom that I guess... That would be madness. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of madness. Oh, you, you've got to get on one of these teams. There, it's like a little country. You get teams that want to follow patterns. You get teams that will ignore everything you say and be quiet, but do their own thing. You get teams that will loudly complain about everything you do, but still follow you. <laughs> and then there'll be teams that will just, it just it, you get all sorts of different stuff. It's just like any city in the world, right? You get all yep. shakes and bakes and... When you get a team that large, it's actually a lot of fun. 
I don't know if it's fun. <laughs> Can I take it? Yeah, John, yeah. John, come work here. I don't know if it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, edit that, edit that, please. And, and Chaz no longer has a job. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's difficult. I can't even imagine, honestly. I mean, I've been on teams of, you know, maybe up to 10. And it gets hard to coordinate things at that point. You know, 20, I'm like, okay. You know, if everybody kind of get... You get most everybody rowing in the same direction, maybe. But much more than that, I really can't visualize what that's like. Working on products like... Facebook or you know some of these other things where there's so many pieces that all work together to do something. Yeah, it just sounds crazy to me to to but I mean people build these systems, right? AWS is a gigantic software system and they all make it work somehow. I don't know. Well, I, I think there's different extremes, right? Like when I worked at Disney, there were some teams that we had to build some of the websites that were just huge and disparate. The reason it worked is because we were able to segregate out pieces of it so different teams could work on it. But it was still hard to coordinate. But in the same sense, when I hear enterprise, I also feel like I heard a new term the other day. Enterprise is tough because we kind of feel like we get these large things in our head. I think maybe a better way to describe it is just a business that is established. Yeah. Right. It's not startups. Um, it's not that kind of thing. It's not a one-man shop or a one-person shop, to be more correct. It's an established business as opposed to emerging. And it could be a three-person development team could be building enterprise stuff too. Sure, sure. I think it, it, but there's history involved. Like what, I think that's what you're aiming at. Like you have a legacy of you, you're, what you're dealing with is not just the new developer out of college, right? You're dealing with people that have been in the industry for 25 years that have learned it. You know, they've, they've, they've been through this. They have their lessons. They've, they have their ways of doing things. And Sometimes those are difficult to break down like the new ways to do things and and the way where the web's going and where the industry is going and everyone wants to break down the monolith you need to break down yourself in order to actually build yourself back up to make yourself a successful developer in this new world. Yeah. So maybe we should start with your your questions here. Your lessons learned my enterprise and development. The first one you mentioned is don't make bonehead mistakes. Want, want to explain that one? Well, it's, 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 yeah, it comes down to the best of web developers that we have at this company. So the company has traditionally been C++, C Sharp developers. And I thought that the web developer teams that we did have would be the best Angular developers, like out of the gate, like, guys, come on, you didn't JavaScript, you've done the prototypal inheritance, guys are masters of that art. Here's this new framework called Angular. Let's use this, let's leverage that. And what I found was that, the web developers tend to just use their old tricks of the trade. One instance of this that popped up was, and this this was actually given to me. This tip was given to me by Ed Morales of Teradata, and I didn't believe it at the time. He told me, "Oh yeah, you're." Be-. I asked him on like Gitter. I said, "Hey man, give me some tips. Like what what am I out for? Like as I'm trying to transform this team." And he said, "Watch out for the web developers." C++ guys, they'll go to the documentation for Angular. The web guys, they just do it the way they know how to do it. So in what actually happened was I had a developer team just using document.location to navigate their Angular app instead of using the router, like router links. And I was just like blown away. I was, that's when I was like, oh my God, he's completely right. He's completely right. So well, I've written some really nice Rails looking code in Angular, Vue, and React. So yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Help me explain, just make sure, or explain this again. You, you're saying one guy or one person used router link and one person used document. Uh, location to no no so uh, the team like the team like they were so familiar with just using JavaScript using document dot location to route the application so set 
Instead of in, inside their component, they actually had button clicks that would invoke uh, document location is equal to and the new route that they wanted to go to. So they were mixing concepts that were from, you know, <laughs> pure JavaScript era with Angular. You know, like, no. Well, well I guess what I'm trying to get you to explain, Chaz, is wh- which one are you saying is, is the boneheaded one? No, which no, one no. is not the way you would recommend? Don't don't use document location. Like refer to use the use the framework, embrace the framework. That's the lesson learned here. I think things like that are fine if it's just in a raw JavaScript app. But if you're using a like you said, if you've dedicated yourself to using a framework and then you're kind of ignoring it most of the time or half the time, I don't know. It seems counterintuitive. Well, let me play. I mean, I'm not disagreeing, but let me play devil's advocate. So let's yeah. say I come from pure JavaScript world and say, mm-hmm. well, I want to learn JavaScript. Those skills are transferable anywhere, right? Sure. Uh, Angular skills are an Angular thing. And one of the knocks Angular developers get sometimes, or React or Vue or whatever, is that we're doing things in an Angular way, but not in a web way, right? So to be clear, router link is an abstraction. Yes. framework over document location doing other things. So my argument back could be to you, well, I want to use the JavaScript way. What's wrong with that? Is something going to happen or why can't I? Oh, wow. Um, good question. What do you say in those kind of situations, you know? Um, I guess I've... Honestly, John, I don't know how to answer that. Um, there's a certain... I mean, it's almost like saying, like, don't use query selector. I mean, that's where it boils down to. Like, you're in this Angular framework. You need to do it the Angular way. I, I Is that understand. like being in a Mexican restaurant and then ordering <laughs> Italian? Is that kind of a, the analogy? <laughs> like, I guess so. Or Mexican. Or, right? or does it have more to do with all of your friends are ordering Mexican and it makes you guys look bad if one of you orders Italian? Is it because everyone's supposed to be writing it the same way? I, I don't... There's so much... Like John said, there's so much distractions that Angular has that benefit the framework. And that consistency that you're getting because of the framework that exists is important. Like, sure, you can use all these native function calls to get things done and get your job accomplished and move on to the next issue. But what it boils down to is the next person that's out of school that learned Angular now has to learn... I'm, I'm trying to keep the, the nativeness to a minimum. I mean, I, and that's what Angular really tries to do is they put these abstractions over in place because they're trying to prevent you from doing bad things. Yeah, I think this is... Um, and to be clear, I'm not, I'm not criticizing what's happening here. I'm just trying to look at the other perspective of it. I think... The problem I sometimes struggle with too is when I see an abstraction, whether it's Angular, Vue, React, or whatever, mm-hmm. I, and I think a lot of people look at it and go, well, that's cool. Angular does it this way. But if you know what's happening under the covers, my next thought is, is there an added advantage to using this way in Angular versus the traditional web way? And a better example might be not, not better, but a, maybe a closer example might be instead of router link, uh, router.navigate to is probably closer to document.location, right? Because if you're going to do document location, you're writing it in code. So router links in the template, but uh, navigate to is in the code. Right. Is there a reason that navigate to exists as opposed to just writing document location? That's maybe where you get to, okay, let's go look at the docs and see that well, thing the, doing. That, well, that boils down to the whole universal, right? It boils down to doing server-side rendering and that type of stuff. You know, we're now, we're, now we're talking about things that I don't really want to get into right. explaining why if there's value in it, I think there's, you know, that's the good thing. This is the kind of conversation I have a lot with folks where they're like, why should I learn this angular way when I can do X, Y, Z? And if the answer is there is value to this abstraction, I think mm-hmm. then that's great. But honestly, I like when people ask these questions because it means they're thinking. And they're, they're challenging the assumptions as opposed to just saying, 
oh, it's in the documentation. I've got to do it this way just because somebody wrote a style guide that said do it this way. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and just to be clear, they didn't refer to the documentation in this case. Yeah. We had an app built using document location to route. Like a jQuery app? It, yeah, that's what yeah. I'm, you know, that's what you have. You have a, you have a team that's comfortable with jQuery. So they're very, you know, that's what's, that's what's occurring. You're, you're using these old methodologies, practices in your applications. Yep. I think you got a great point too, Alyssa. You, you mentioned, you know, maybe getting people on the same page, uh, doing it the same way. I think there's value in that too. I'm trying to think of why it's bad. Like, okay, other than legibility, like if you have new people join the team and half your code is written a different way, I feel like it makes it harder for those new people to learn the code. But other than that, I'm also, I don't really know. We always do stress consistency, right, between developers and try to have the same patterns, but I don't know why. (laughs) It's always good to ask why. I'll tell you, one of the best things I ever learned is ask why and keep asking why. Don't, you know, even your own things that you've done for years. And as long as you do it in a respectful way, it's a good conversation and good things come of it. Every time I hear that, you know, there's a bunch of books about that sort of methodology, John. I just always wonder why. Why should I be asking why? <laughs> Joe, Joe, why do you wonder why you should ask why, though? <laughs> That's a good question. I never thought about that. <laughs> Joe, why have you never thought about it? <laughs> oh, gosh. So you're, you were saying you got like this very specific example, Chaz, here, right? They're doing yeah. things this way, and it's a very specific... Uh, they're web developers. They already know a way to do thing, something. They learn this new tool, technique, kit, whatever. They're yep. trying to do the new thing in the old way. Like, what, what is the point of that? It, this is about just as much about really learning as it is about learning something new as it is about anything else. Whether or not you're a web developer going to Angular or even if a C-sharp developer going to Angular, because even though the C-sharp developer is going to go to the documentation, right? Like, I remember when I went to C-sharp, I did so many things wrong when I, I was trying to do it VB and ASP and Foxpro way when I started C-sharp. And then when I went to the web, uh, I guess maybe it was a little bit different because it was so JavaScript was so different from anything I was used to that I like I questioned everything. But you still you got like you got these ways that you know how to do things and you can somehow relate them. And that's one of the blessings and fall drawbacks of being a very experienced developer or having experience as a developer is you learn things to relate them to, but sometimes you don't learn to do it the idiomatic or proper way because you make assumptions that just aren't correct. So this isn't specific to enterprise, though, right? Well, it's the lesson is your seasoned web developers are going to make Angular mistakes. What I'm saying is don't just mm-hmm. don't just assume that your web developer is going to take Angular and use all the patterns that are coming from the Tor Heroes or anything in the right way. Like they're going to make mistakes, you know? Because you're, you're probably safe that most people would assume, oh, if I've got a .NET developer heading over to Angular or a Java developer or whatever, a Rails developer, that they are not going to do it the wrong way. But well, uh, they won't because they why they, they, they reference the documentation. See, they will go back to the websites. They will do a Google search. See, right. they don't, they they don't know. They knew, know better, right? Right. And, but if you have a web developer, though, that's like, well, I know how to change the URL of the window. Come on, I know this. Or I know how to query for that element. I know how to do that. They'll just right. do it. They'll do it in the way that they, they won't even go to Angular IO. If they won't do that, they'll just do it the way they know how to do it. That's the lesson. Even though you think you can just hand Angular to a web team that's been working with the web for 10 years, keep a pulse on them. Make sure, like, review their code every now and then. Make sure that they are actually embracing the Angular concepts. So this isn't, isn't this, more, though, extractable, extractable into a more generic piece of advice being, if you know something and you're learning something that's kind of similar, but not, you need to not 
make nearly as many assumptions about how much you know, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're an Angular developer and you're going to go to React, that's probably not a situation where you're going to want to uh, assume that you know what's going on, right? Yep. You need to research exactly. stuff and learn the React way. Yeah, I think it was just a lesson learned for myself because I just assumed that good web developers would do good things. <laughs> Utilizing view components, what's that all about? Yeah, so that's, that's a huge one. Those are components that I think of them as like smart components that you actually route your router with. If you're building an application right now and you're just routing to components and these components just sit inside some root folder called components, you're setting yourself up for an organization like, how do I word this? It's, it's going to be difficult for someone to track down what components are used for what URLs. And that's what this is all about. Like create a folder inside your project called views. And inside there, you should be putting one smart component, one component called like home, about. That's what I'm talking about. These main components that you're using to drive your actual URLs. And those components should talk to NGRX, sorry, NGXS and all those. It's a smart component. It's talking to all those data source frameworks to pull in your data, to read from the router, and uh, basically bootstrap that view. Sorry, that's a terrible <laughs> description of what I'm trying to talk about here. So yeah, but let me see if I can restate it. So essentially, they're your top level pages yeah. or views um, that you that you route to, and so when you when you change your your path or whatever, you know, you tell the router to go somewhere. This is what it pulls in and loads. Exactly. Yep. And so what developers typically do right out of the tour heroes is they'll just build a folder and they'll just start slamming components, component after component, until the folder becomes 20 components. And you got them all in one folder. And you just look at someone's application and go, well, what, what is actually used for presentational like viewing on, the, on a certain link or something? And it gets just hard to look at code and figure out how it's actually organized. So what I'm proposing here, and I'm not the only one, I, I, there's other people that this isn't my own unique idea, is, but I'm definitely pushing it here, is make view components. So go as far as, instead of using dot .component, do dot .view, go into your tslint file and modify it to accept components with the suffix, or the, sorry, the, yeah, the suffix of view. So add the view suffix as being an allowed um, suffix. So typically out of, out of the box with CLI, you get just component. Go in there, add view, and then create a folder just for views. And then each folder that you make inside of the views are actually the, the routes of your application, like about, home, log out, log in. Those should all be view components. I've seen a couple of different technologies do something like this. I, I like the idea definitely of having breaking this down into you've got components that get routed to, in this case, yes. calling them view components. Uh, and as Charles also pointed out, routable components. Yep. View does this as well. They actually have a folder in the most of their default strategies where you'll have a folder called views and a folder called components out of the box. Mm. They're both components, but the ones in views can be things that you route to while the components one are more like pieces that go into those views. They're not necessarily routed to. Yep. That's uh, I like same. that concept. The organization is where it breaks down for me a little. I'm curious what you think. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I like having everything in one folder place is if I'm working on customer and it's got one routable view, maybe three, let me say it, customer list, customer edit it, customer review, picking anything. Sure. There are three view components, as you say. And then inside of each component, there could be seven to 10 subcomponents that show up in each one. Some of them appear in more than one of those views. Some of them only appear in one. 
if I put those seven to 10 components in another folder somewhere else, and I put the view ones in a folder mixed up with all the other view components, am I not jumping back and forth a lot? Or how do you organize that so you're not playing with your tree view and your editor? (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Let me just get this right. So you're talking about components that are being used by multiple views in this case. Uh, It could be, or they could be components that are used by one view each. Would you still separate them or would you put them in the same folder? I'm trying to get an idea of how you organize these things. Yeah, yeah. So So each view will then contain its own folder called components. And you'd put your components that are only used within the view within that folder of components. So instead of using this shared component concept where you you have a global components folder, isolate your views with your components. And as those components are actually, if they're used in more than one view, that's where it's going into my next lesson, bubble your components up. So you put your components as close as possible to the views that actually utilize them. And as a second view then needs that component, that's when you would say, okay, we have two views, the about page and the home page, both utilize this navigation component. Let's bubble that up another level. Let's put it into a shared components folder that's outside of the views folder that's used in multiple areas. So that's where you get into the, the a bubbling effect. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. And and get my personal opinion on it. I don't think it matters that much to me as long as the entire team does it the same way. Uh, I know Joe has some specific opinions on organization. How do you feel about all this stuff, Joe? Oh, my organization opinions. We need Ward here to talk about organization. <laughs> I know. You want to fight. You got to get Ward and you together. Right? <laughs> yeah, his Jedi components and his Sith components. It's funny because when I get in and I build applications, and I've been playing a lot with Vue lately, but you know, I, I have played a bit with Angular as well. I tend to like to group things together by concern. So if, if they're general layout components, then I'll put them in a layouts folder or layout folder or you know, maybe a shared folder. As far as like view components, I, I kind of like that because they're kind of all at the same level. But I, I would really actually tend to put like uh, components that belong to the home page in a home folder, including the home component, which yep. is the view component. And then similar with the about and, and on and on and on, right? So if I have a customer's master top level view, then I'll put that into its own folder or maybe leave that at the top level and have all my, what you call view components up there. And then anything that belongs to that will go into a customer's folder. And then, yeah, anything that, that's shared will go into you know something that describes what the concern is that, that they belong to. So like... So. Every Rails app ever built. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's a very Rails way to think. Well, actually, no. Rails separates concerns um, by um, by concern. So it's it's model and view and controller. Wait, right. did, it, did you say it separates concerns by concern? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> wow. by, by layer, it does it by layer. Did you ask, <laughs> the, the did layer of the why though. <laughs> All right, but, but, so yeah. Rails separates concerns by layers. Yes. And, and that it actually, I don't like that as much. I like putting all the stuff that's going to change together, together. I agree. Whatever I'm, my general feeling is whatever I'm working on or my team's working on, I want us to have the least amount of friction when we're developing that thing as possible. Uh, so yes. what the exact organization is, I don't think is truly important. I think there's many that work well. To me, an example of what doesn't work well thing you hit on, Charles, is have a folder for components, have a folder for filters, have a folder for services. That's not how I think of in my app. I think of I'm building a customer screen yeah. or I'm building a login screen, you know? Yeah. And, and just to, uh, 
to pile on here a little bit. The, the first few things that we've talked about, we're, what we're really talking about is the mental shortcuts that we take. Yep. And as you get a larger and larger group of people working on an application, you want more and more of them taking the same mental shortcuts. And that's why you're looking for consistency, which is something that Alyssa mentioned. And so when we're talking about, you know, going back like document.location and things like that, that level of consistency basically allows us to take those mental shortcuts. And mm -hmm. so if you can stick close to something that is more adoptable by the community, or if there are mental shortcuts that the framework designers are intending you or planning on you taking, then doing it the framework way can pay off that way. And as you bring new people in, they're going to be taking some of those mental shortcuts anyway if they've been using the framework. Well, I even saw it with, um, with upgrading. So our team would kind of have an argument about which way to do it. And if we did stick with the, I guess, like the Angular recommended way, it did make... Because I think this was actually before NG2. And so it made upgrading for our team easier if we did decide to go with the Angular way. And so sometimes there's, I don't know, architectural decisions that you don't see. Like, why would we do it this way? And then a month later, they release something and you're like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But it's a lot more stable now. So, <laughs> I think it's important to document these things. I remember when I was working with one of my large teams way, way, way back, we used to have to, we were using a plugin that would automatically embed the Angular 1.5 templates into the bundle. So combine the, the HTML in with the JavaScript, basically. So you have two different HTTP calls. I think it was called ng template at the time. A lot of people still use this thing. And with this, if I, if I remember correctly, you had to have a comment above your controller at the time or component where it said, okay, use, the, use this plugin basically. So the plugin would look for that comment so it knew where to kind of put these things or to do injectables, for example. NG inject was another one. You could have a comment for it to do it. Wow. That sounds super breakable. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was interesting. And comment did this. Moment. But then once you did it and a month passes by, new people join the team, they're like, why the hell are we putting this comment on top of all these controllers? You know, and it's, so it's, um, it's something that we made a mistake on, I remember early on doing this. It was, it was ng-inject, by the way, for the injectables. And it was a super valuable thing to do, but without telling people why, that was a big mistake I made at the time. You know, so it was something I needed to document. It was actually one of the first times I worked. Did people start taking out your comments? <laughs> yes. And if you did that and you bundled it in production, it wasn't working right. <laughs> but, but once you know about it and you see it, then your brain just automatically makes the connections for you on that. Yeah. And that was a mistake I made. I had the curse of knowledge. I knew what it did, but there were yeah. new people on the team who had no idea. Yeah. And so as much as you can get everybody within the same context, you know what, where is this? Oh, it's here. No, it's here. And that's what we're talking about with the code, code organization and things like that. Need to create a complex enterprise Angular application? Angular Bootcamp is an intensive three-day workshop class to learn the basics of Angular through sophisticated techniques for real-world applications. We target Angular 6 and the recent versions with much of the curriculum is suitable back to Angular 2. Or go beyond the three-day class with a consultation or project launch with Oasis Digital, the team behind Angular Bootcamp. We can assist your team or launch your project with advanced Angular topics, including scalability, data flow, state management, full stack product design, and more. Contact us for a private class at your location or buy a ticket for public classes in various cities around the U.S. and occasionally in Europe. Online live instructor training is also available at angularbootcamp.com. And you're talking about uh, number four on your list is packaging only if you're sharing. We all like to share. So what does that mean? 
Yeah, I struggle with this a lot. Like as soon as teams found out that they could uh, use NG Packager or use the CLI, sorry, it's actually now built in the CLI, but as soon as they found out that they could package that up in a nice tidy way and push that out and put it as an NPM package in our internal ProGit, um, I had multiple teams starting to do that. And they did not understand the consequences of doing that. I think that packaging a library comes with responsibility. And a lot of teams just are very quick to say, well, great, we want to make this shareable. Let's make it shareable, even though I don't have an actual customer that wants this. So they will do that. So in the example I have is I have a team that is actually building an application, and then they have just one component. One component built by a team of two developers, and there is not a second application. It's only (laughs) just one application. And this other team of two developers decided, hey, we're going to package this and we're going to ship it independently in its own end. We're not going to even develop it within your own repository, even though there's just one application that's using this thing. And when I asked them, like, guys, like, if you just build this alongside their project, they're not going to have to NPM link it. They're not going to have to go through all these hoops just to get the latest version. Just why don't you just develop it? Like, use the, you know, the projects folder inside Angular CLI. Create a, you can make a library folder in there. It's really easy. Just go ahead and make your own library folder and work out of that. and it would be ambient to them that you were even doing this. They didn't want to hear anything about that. They wanted to ship their own component and publish it themselves. So what I'm telling teams to do is avoid packaging. Avoid packaging as long as you can because you're going to have teams that are going to want to, for whatever reason, they're going to want to ship their own stuff even though there's only one application that's actually using it. As soon as you have two applications that actually need this component and they're completely different repositories, that's when it makes sense. Just don't do it till you need it. Don't package your solution unless two applications need it. Well, one thing that I see here is that if I build something into my application, I know what the use case is. I know what the usage is. I know how all that goes. Exactly. Um, if I have something that is useful to another application, I don't necessarily completely understand what the use case is or the expected use, usage is over there. And so what I may wind up doing is I may package it up in such a way early that makes it hard for them to use in their particular use case, even though it is applicable. Yep. And so if I wait and see, okay, now team B needs what team A created. Now we can have a conversation about what the API should look like, what the packaging and module structure should be. And then we can turn around and say, okay, well, we're going to extract this and we're going to pull the parts that make sense for you, and we're going to put it together in a way that you can use it. Exactly. It's really, it's really interesting that um, some of your team was, was doing this preemptively. Did they tell you why? Like, do they just... They is that knew, their passion? Yeah, the, this, well, <laughs> here, here it, this is enterprise. This is where enterprise comes in. So traditionally, like if I built something in an ASP.NET web page, and it was some type of component, let's just say I have a, a, a navigation panel or something like that, that I'm going to ship in my ASP.NET webpage. They felt the pain of how difficult that is to actually refactor and make into an ASP.NET control. And I know mm. that we don't have a lot of people here with .NET backend experience like that. That's like old school .dot, uh, .NET, but that was not something easy to do because there was no template engine. You had to do everything within C Sharp. So they felt the pain of trying to refactor something that was once a view like HTML template and try to make that shareable for the rest of the organization. And what that ended up having to do is they had to take and write that component 
almost completely in C sharp. And so they, the refactoring process was not just, oh, let's just take this little bit of code and bubble it up a level. No, it was like, we have to go in, refactor it, figure out what JavaScript does this actually use inside the page. Because remember, just have a script JS, right? On the page. Functions on the window. Let's just have mm-hmm. fun. You know, so that was, <laughs> that was their way of thinking. So refactoring something like that is extremely difficult. So it was basically fear of refactoring. Yes. And so they're like, Thinking of the biggest picture they could possibly imagine this code being and trying to write it from there. Yeah. How do I, how do I, like they, they're, they're stuck in the way of thinking like, oh my God, we, we did that in the past and it took months. And really with Angular, it makes it super easy. Everything's modular, all the components, as long as you organize your code right, it's easy to lift your components from your own solution or your project into a library. It makes it really portable. And yeah, trying to get that across to new teams just coming on to Angular. They don't see that. They're already like, let's just build libraries. So no, that totally of training. makes sense. It, and like that, from their side of it, I see now why they did it. But I also see why it's not the best to start off doing. So I, I wanted to ask you, because we're running out of time, about for sure, number five, uh, teams should develop a fun application. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've just seen a lot of people go and build applications. Hey, you're going to build an Angular application. Go for it. Um, they take that as, let's rewrite this thing that's been built for 10 years and um, do it in Angular. And what ends up happening is the team just trips over themselves, actually. So what I'm, what I, what I'm saying you should do here is have the team just build something that maybe is useful as a tool for the team or a fun project. Just build something that gets the team into Angular outside the Tor Heroes. Have everyone do the Tor Heroes. Everyone do your own learning on your own, you know, plural site, John Papa's course, let's do it. And then after everyone's kind of done that, let's jump back in. Let's build a app that's going to be throwaway, but we're just going to do it for fun. And we're going to learn as a team how to work in Angular. And what you'll see is the team will start to figure out like, oh, what's this router link? Oh, I didn't know you could reference template reference variables like that. Oh, I didn't know you could use a view child. Like you're going to get some like initial like the stirring the pot of ideas and how to solve problems occurring. And do that first, like have a week or two of just that happening before you jump into let's rebuild this thing we did for 10 years. (laughs) Because what you're going to get is people just tripping up over themselves. So have you actually done that where you had your team do a fun application? Actually, my team, not specifically, but this is what I recommend for all new teams that come on board. Any new team members that join our team, they actually spend a week or two doing this on their own. They basically go, we tell them, go do the tour of heroes. And after tour of heroes, I want you just to experiment. And then I want you to make pull requests and include everyone on this process. So this is a very, you know, that's where you're going to get your initial feedback. So we're trying to to break those bad habits early through these tiny projects that they've actually built. That's a really neat idea. So you don't spend any more than a couple of weeks, you said. Yeah. And I don't want them to just jump right into the code base because now that's just another hurdle for them to like figure out, okay, what did this other developer do before me? Like I'd want them just to get into the code base on their own, figure out how to use components, how to... How, does, how do you just work in this ecosystem? And how do I work with the team? And that's, that's some... Yeah, just build a starter app. Very cool. Fun projects. So number six makes me think that research is bad. <laughs> you have a topic yeah. to break out of the research loop. Yeah, because there's just so... Mm. There's a lot of... There's a lot. There's a lot. If you take a brand <laughs> new developer, brand new developer and said, build this app and ship it to production in six months, 
and it needs to have language translations. It needs to have all the bells and whistles, right? They're going to be spinning their wheels trying to figure out how to do all these things the right way. And really what you should be doing is just, just build an application. Just So here, this is my own experience. We started out looking at like, how do we build a modern application with web, right? How do we do that? What are, how do we do translations? How do we write to left? There's so many things that we need to do in order to ship an enterprise product that government can use, that healthcare can use. It's not easy. And if you get caught up in all of those problems that you need to solve early on and just keep researching and researching, you're never going to get anything out. So what I'm basically advocating here is figure out your MVP, what you need, your minimum viable product, figure out what that is and just build it with your team. Whatever it is, go and build it and then get feedback on it. It's, a, it's just saying, do agile things. I just feel like it could be hard to find the balance between... Because in, earlier in the show, we talked about how you basically should be doing research, at least on the language or the framework side, so that you're not just... Because for instance, I feel like your developers were jumping in using Document or using the JavaScript way of it. And that sure. was just the fastest way to get going. But at the same time, you have to lean into research a bit. So it's like the balance, right? Of like, when do we stop researching or... Well, it's a difference between... No, well, <laughs> well what I, let me just clarify it. Like, that's the difference between understanding how Angular works and the methods and the toolkits and the utilities that are available already for you out of the box and then trying to figure out how to do translations or picking a state store. You know, like the, the, it, gets, it gets beyond just Angular mm, at that point. Does. There's so many things that you can pull into your application and so many little prototypes that you could do like, oh, let's try NGX or NGX, NGX Translate. Let's try uh, just using the regular translation stuff. Um, let's try NGRX. Let's try NGXS. You know, like you could just get into this whole research loop of trying to figure stuff out for the organization. And you should just like buckle down and just build something to prove that you can build something that's modern, that is accessible, that is mobile first, you know, all these things that we want to build in our applications to make them rich. You can do it and you don't have to know everything up front. Like let those, it's, it's, it's okay to let a couple things slip. You don't need to know everything. So like my lesson learned here is 25 years, this company that I'm working at has been developing, you know, software. And they're trying to pour all of those lessons learned into this modern framework, right? Like, oh, don't do it that way. We, we knew 10 years ago that was the wrong way to do it. Don't worry about that stuff. Just build something now. And so this is really... It's not really a lesson for the, like, the five-person team. This is a lesson for the teams that are really trying to break down the monolith. 400 developers that are just trying to get the ball rolling. Just build something. Don't get caught up in that continual churn that you're going to be faced. Because you're going to have developers that are seasoned, that have been here for 20, 15 years, that are going to say, well, how are you going to do X? And you look at X and you go, I have no idea. <laughs> and I don't even think Angular has... A, you know, like You're like, oh my God, I didn't even, that didn't even occur to me. Don't sweat it. That might sound bad, but no, just build it. Just build. Agile. Mm. Keep building upon what you have. Yeah, I think a common theme between a couple of these is just having this mindset of, you know, like your MVP versus what <laughs> thinking way too far down the line or, yeah. I don't know, really blowing things out of proportion way too early when you haven't even started yet. So exactly. Yep. Mm. That's, that, is, that is pretty much the common theme here. And just to <laughs> like build on that, like I, I also talk about like resisting to build the utility libraries and stuff. You want to be 
our team right now, we've we have about two years of Angular experience. And I if I get a pull request from a developer that's trying to make a new utility class or something, it might make unit testing really simple. It might look great. Like I look at the code and like you've eliminated so many lines in the code because you've added this utility class. Great. But don't build utility classes. The teams are going to be looking at your code. And as soon as you start putting things in there that are your own homebrew things that they can't find through Google, you're just adding another level for them to go, what? And they'll stop reading your code because of that. Good point. Yep. I'm going to push us toward picks because I know that some of the panelists have a hard stop coming up. But yeah, before we do that, Chaz, where do people find you online? Assuming you blog or on Twitter, GitHub, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. So um, you can find me at Gatton on Twitter. And that's basically my main handle. Awesome. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take-home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash angular. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Uh, John, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, my pick is kind of a generic one. I have been struggling for years with where to write. I like to write. And I've moved my blog like five or six times. At one point, I even tried Ruby. It'll make you happy, Chuck. Yay! (laughs) Go check out Ruby Rogues if you're Ruby. I quickly ran away from it, sorry. (laughs) But uh, what I was really looking for is where can I blog that I don't have to worry about setting up my own blog? And I ended up on Ghost, which I have hosted now, a Ghost Pro Pro Online. And it works. It's at johnpapa.net. But lately, I've been really pushing for, you know, maybe I should be blogging on Medium. Uh, a lot of people go to Medium and they're doing a lot of stuff there. And so my pick is is Medium itself. While it isn't a perfect platform, what's really nice, if you're looking for a place to write and it's no muss, no fuss, Medium is a great place. I, I've been enjoying writing there uh, lately. And what I like about it is if you are new to writing, it's a great place for you to write and it's already got a community. So people searching for content that you might be writing, so if someone searches for enterprise development with Angular, that would get a lot of hits right there. So I'm kind of liking Medium lately. It's not all perfect. There are some issues with it, but it's a great entry-level way to do some writing. And I may end up switching a lot of my stuff there. Nice. Uh, Alyssa, what are your picks? Um, so I don't have very good picks. I am super pumped though. Today is me and my husband's eighth anniversary. So although congrats, <laughs> I had the year wrong. I told everyone it was our ninth and he was like, babe, do the math. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Years and dates don't really mean much to me anymore. I'm like, how old am I? So it's kind of gotten to that point in life where, but yeah, I'm super pumped about that. Um, and also we got our AT-AT fixed. So we have, Joe, you should like this, a very large blow-up Christmas AT-AT 
in our front yard. Oh, so I love I, it. <laughs> and uh, he is he's the most festive that we get in this household. So his fan was broken. And so my husband spent about four hours uh, rewiring him. And I was like, <laughs> yay, hardware. So yes, two festive picks for me today, but nothing technical. And thank you so much again for coming on the show. I just wanted to give you a thank you before we ended it because this was a really fun one. All right, Joe, what are your picks? All right, so I'm going to pick two board games today. I've been playing some board games lately, having some fun times. So the first one is called Quacks of Quedlinburg, which is as awesome as it sounds. It's literally about being a quack doctor. Like a... But are you saying quack like the duck noise? No, quack like a doctor, you know, like a bad doctor. (laughs) Yeah. Quack. (laughs) Yeah, it's called Quacks of Quedlinburg is the name of the game. It's it's really cool. Um, Joe, why? <laughs> so um, I really like that game. That one was a lot of fun. You basically are a quack trying to mix a like potion and impress a bunch of uh, like townspeople, I guess. It's pretty fun. Uh, really cool mechanics. And the other one I played that was really fun is called Spell Smashers. And Spell Smashers is actually like a spelling game, which doesn't, not everybody loves spelling games, but I really like spelling games. You're trying to spell words and you have these potions and then you use, with the words that you spell, you defeat monsters and it's really fun. So Spell Smashers, those are my two picks. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> nice. Um, I'm going to jump in with a few picks. And yeah, I'm not picking games and I'm not picking code stuff and I'm not picking dates out of my life. Uh, I decided that I am going to run a marathon in 2019. Uh, my friend, John Sonmez. Oh my goodness. Yay. Chuck, that's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I've been thinking about it for a while. And the problem that I had was that, you know, I would uh, basically gear up and I'd go run a 10K or something. And then my running would just fall off. And, you know, I'd get burned out or bored or whatever with it, or I just wouldn't know what to do next. Anyway, so I I was talking about it because John, uh, my friend John, uh, has run a number of marathons. I was like, yeah, I keep thinking I want to run a marathon. He's like, just do it. So I did. But then I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So he recommended to me a running coach. Um, And so I went and signed up. The company that I went with that provides running coaches is called McCurdy Train. That's M-C-K-I-R-D-Y trained.com. I've recommended this on a few shows and I know that they're already somewhat overloaded. <laughs> so I apologize if um, it takes them a little longer than normal to get back to you. Anyway, they, they've been terrific. Um, been giving me workouts, helped me you know, figure out some stuff with gear. One piece of gear, and I'm also picking the, that, is the Garmin Forerunner 235 watch. I needed something that would prompt me to run or walk on an interval because that's the kind of training I'm doing at, this, at the moment because I'm in terrible shape, right? Run a little, walk a little. And uh, my Fitbit wouldn't do it. So anyway, the the Garmin watch does. I'm pretty happy with it. So I picked that up as well. I've had a few people ask me what marathon I plan to run. And I'm planning to run the St. George Marathon. That's going to be in October, St. George, Utah. So if you want to sign up, you know, I'm happy to meet people down there. I, I don't know how likely that is, but that's fine. And yeah. That's awesome though. I'm really proud of you. That's something that I am also, it's on my, my check like bucket list. So you do it. I'm so pumped. How long does it take to run a marathon on average? About five minutes. 
<laughs> Thank That's you, John. Oh, well, we know see. you're in shape. I don't know. It depends on how many episodes of Stranger Things you watch. I mean, <laughs> 10 is like, you know, 10 hours. Right? Are there any wormholes involved in space and time during this running of the marathon? Because I don't know. I calculated it and I was like, is it going to take me seven hours at this pace to run a marathon? Is it really a seven hour thing or am I like doing math wrong? So my understanding is, is that they generally expect it to take you somewhere in the ballpark of four four hours, five hours. Okay, so if you're at seven, you're doing something very wrong. <laughs> I, I really have no idea. No idea whatsoever. So That's awesome. Cool um, to hear that the Garmin watch is helping you. I wanted, when I was running, I wanted an app that would basically turn off my music if I got below a certain rhythm. Oh, because, that would be awesome. <laughs> well, it'd be super annoying. You'd be like, oh, fine, I'll speed up, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but very cool. Yeah. So anyway, I picked St. George because my dad ran it when I was a kid. Kind of a way for me to connect with him since we lost him this year. But yeah, I'm 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 pumped. It's going to be fun. So so this time next year, I'm going to be almost as ripped as John. <laughs> well, good luck, Charles. Uh, really, uh, I think it's great, and you should be proud of yourself for uh, taking this on. Oh, thanks, uh, Chaz. Do you have some picks for us? Yeah, definitely. Anyone out there building schematics? The CDK actually has a utility class for schematics, so it adds a couple. If you pull in Angular um, slash um, I'm forgetting now the package name, but if you pull in the CDK, basically there's utility classes there to help you build schematics. I don't think they've ever written a blog post about it, but you'll find stuff to add packages to your projects from uh, just good stuff there if you're actually building your own homebrew schematics. GraphQLeditor.com, really cool website to quickly build a GraphQL schema. Um, we're kind of getting into the GraphQL thing, and that's a really cool tool. I hope that they keep working on that. And Thomas Burleson just had a blog post on Angular in depth on ghosting elements. And I think that's a really interesting post. So definitely check that out. We might have to get him back on. And yeah, we did an episode of Angular schem- on Angular Schematics last week with Brian and Kevin. So if you are interested in schematics, definitely give that one a listen. All right, folks. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Thank you for coming, Chaz. Yeah, thank you guys. A lot of fun. And this is really interesting just to talk about the approach to large organizations building large Angular apps. It's an adventure. (laughs) (laughs) An adventure in Angular, no less. It it definitely is. Oh, wow. You brought it full circle there. (laughs) I I did. I did. I'm sorry. I'm good at the dad jokes. All right, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up, folks, and we'll be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. Bye.